failure isn't fatal. It's not final, right? It's it's a, a piece of your story. Um, it doesn't bother me in the least because I don't feel like that is a reflection on my my moral character or my abilities in, in totality. It was just one project, and that project didn't work. I am an entrepreneur. Be inspired. We are incredibly powerful. Color outside the line. Open your mind. Dream big. Be bold. Take action. The narrative needs to change. We can fix this. We can change this. I know we can. Think broad. Think like a broad. Think broad. Hi, I'm Erica Dagnan, your host of Broad Mike Season 3. Today, I'm in the studio with Christina Wallace, founding director of Bridge Up STEM a new educational initiative to captivate, inspire, and propel girls and minorities into computer science. Christina has been named to Mashable's list of 44 female founders to know and Refinery29's list of the most powerful women in New York City tech. We will be discussing lessons from a failed startup, and how she managed to secure over $7.5 million in funding, as well as the mentorship of seasoned executives. Christina, thank you so much for joining us on Broadmic today. Thanks for having me. So we are so excited to learn a little bit more about your story. You have an amazing background, but what I'd love to do is start a little bit uh, by talking about Bridge Up STEM. Mm. So can you tell us uh, about what Bridge Up STEM does? Sure. So Bridge Up STEM is a new division of the education department at the American Museum of Natural History. It's a division I founded two years ago with money from the Helen Gurley Brown Foundation focused on this question of computer science and science and how we diversify who gets access to that world and who becomes part of the tech talent pipeline. Now, now this is what I love about the way things can change. So the Helen Gurley Brown Foundation, we all know Helen Gurley Brown was a very famous original editor of Cosmopolitan magazine. Mm-hmm. So we're going from how to land that man uh-huh. to, you know, how to, <laughs> how to code. So tell me, you know, how, how do we get from there to here? And, yeah. and why is that a really important part of your mission? Totally. So uh, one of the things that I loved about Helen, and I never got to meet her, but I, I certainly know of her legacy um, as a longtime reader of Cosmo um, <laughs> and now being part of uh, the foundation's extended family. Um, She cared very much about the economic equality of women um, and of opportunity and growth. She came up uh, very poor in Arkansas. She moved to New York and made something pretty amazing of herself. herself Like pulled herself up by the bootstraps, (laughs) yeah. I mean, she went from being a secretary and to a copywriter all the way up to being editor-in-chief and visionary of what Cosmo is today. And... um, and she left behind these amazing resources, this this money, this legacy, um, and really wanted to see that mission extended. And so Eve Burton, who's the head of the foundation, who was a very close friend of Helen's and is um, also the general counsel of Hearst Magazines, Hearst Publishing, um, she helped Helen kind of craft what this vision would be before she passed in 2012. Um, And there were a couple of things that she cared very much about uh, that she and David, her husband, both cared very much about. There was certainly um, access and literacy and addressing poverty, which they do with their $15 million grant to 
the New York City Public Library called, that was the original Bridge Up, um, this grant that they gave to me in the museum to work for Bridge Up STEM was really focused on girls and minorities in the computer science uh, world. And then they gave money to Columbia University and Stanford to look at the Brown Center for Media and Innovation that's really about this question of the future of journalism and data and storytelling. Um, and and these are all things that are true about their work and about their legacy translated to the 21st century. So the work that that we've been doing at the museum for the last two years really started from a question of how do we get access for women and girls well i would love to know so so this is very cool i mean i think it sounds like such an amazing mission and an an amazing initiative and you seem like a great person to lead it um so how do you guys get more women or girls Mm -hmm. and and minority children Mm -hmm. interested in computer science so the big question for me was not why they're Um, not currently doing it, but what is it that they're interested in already that we can use as a hook? Um, And there's this great study that the Girl Scouts put out in 2012 called Generation STEM. And it it had this amazing insight that I just have latched onto from from the moment I read it that says the big difference between high-achieving Um, girls who are interested in STEM and high-achieving boys who are interested in STEM. The big difference is that boys tend to have one or two interests that they really go deep on, like chess or video games or chemistry. Pokemon Go. Pokemon Go. (laughs) But girls who are interested in STEM are much more likely to also be interested in the humanities and sports and music and the arts. And so multitaskers. Exactly. And so for them, they don't want to have to pick one thing and dig down and identify as only that from 12 or 13 or 14 onward. They're looking for a multidisciplinary, interactive approach to learning these these concepts, and they want to know what they can do with it, right? They don't want to just learn to code to to code. They want to do something with that code. So that was the big insight that really kind of connected computer science with science and why the museum is a perfect fit for this program, the future of science is computational. You can't hand code a human genome. You can't study the stars using just a telescope in your backyard anymore. It comes with giant reams of data and you need computational skills to make sense of that. So we're taking a natural curiosity about the world, which girls have in equal amounts to boys, um, and applying Uh, coding as a tool to allow that curiosity to blossom. And we have found an entire cohort of girls in New York City who are not necessarily attracted to coding video games or coding apps or websites, but are attracted to bioinformatics and astrophysics. Well, I think that, um, you know, girls, at least I can definitely say for myself, you know, girls love solving problems, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, that that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, one of the things that you mentioned was this sort of multidisciplinary approach and, you know, wanting to sort of be able to do a lot of things. And mm-hmm. I really saw that in your background. I mean, mm-hmm. you've had an incredibly varied background working not only in sort of the startup world, but also as a management consultant and even at the Metropolitan Opera. Yep. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about how these experiences maybe prepared you um, to sort of really do your own thing with Bridge? Sure. So I I have always been this multidisciplinary person. I, I was reading this Girl Scout report and just nodding on every page. I'm like, yes, that's me. That's me. 
Um, I, I say I speak three languages fluently, English, math, and music. Okay. Um, I've been a classically trained pianist, cellist, and an opera singer since the age of four, and I've been a math nerd as far back as I can remember. I was captain of the math team. I was a math major in college, along with a theater major. So I've oh, always that's loved— That's like an unusual combination. It that's is, very cool. It is. Um, and so I've always loved— really kind of exercising both sides of my brain and, more interestingly to me, finding those intersections. You're like a a Danica Grimm. uh, Exactly. (laughs) She was at UCLA. (laughs) So I came out of college and I thought, well, what do I do now? I love physics, computer science, math, theater, music. What do I do? And um, thought about going the Ph.D. in math path and went and visited and interviewed in all these schools. And it was like you have to study one tiny little section of math and really pick one problem and focus on it for seven years. And I was like, oh, that's not going to be a fit for me. Focus is not where my future lies. It's really more about breadth and intersection that gets me excited. So I moved to New York and I needed a job and I sent my resume everywhere, and I got one interview, and it was at the Metropolitan Opera, which worked out very well for me. Um, So I've had, you know, uh, what probably looks like a a crazy career path, um, from opera to consulting to a fashion startup. Yeah, I want want to know about that. Tell me about your fashion Um, startup. That sounds really cool. Well, you know, we're always talking about how it's actually not that glamorous to be um, a tech founder, but I guess if you're in fashion, maybe (laughs) it's slightly glamorous. No, it's even less glamorous. (laughs) Imagine walking through it's how hot it is today in New York City. Imagine walking through the garment district. It is steamy here in New York With, today. you know, 20 yards of Egyptian wool over your shoulder, trying to get it from where you bought it at the fabric store to your factory three blocks away because it's too big to hire a, a bike messenger to take, but it's not so far a distance that they're going to, you know, rent a truck for it. So you have to schlep it. And then after that, you have a meeting with an editor and they're going to want to know why you look so... <laughs> sweaty. So sweaty and <laughs> so, so awful. So yeah, <laughs> no, I don't glow. I sweat. So it's it's even less glamorous, I think, doing a fashion startup. No, we we started Quincy. My co-founder and I started Quincy because we were both tall women. Uh, I'm six feet tall. She's five nine, and we were at business school. We were trying to get ready for. Where, where'd you go to business school? Harvard. Okay, nice. Um, and we were trying to. Um, put together our professional wardrobes for interviews, for our post-MBA life, and we couldn't find clothes that fit us. And we're not, you know, I, I know that six feet tall is not a normal height for women, I guess, but I'm not the only one who felt unserved or underserved by the fashion industry, that there were women with very large breasts that couldn't find a shirt that would close or a blazer that would actually cover them. There were women who were short and curvy and tall and not curvy and every combination. And the more that we talked to our classmates and our friends, the more we felt like it was a very narrow segment of the population that actually was being served by the normal sizes out there. So we took this approach. We looked at Bonobos, which was a big inspiration for us, um, that do men's pants. And then we looked at men's suiting. And we said, why do they get sizes that are based on you know, chest measurement, Actual height. Yeah, they get shirts based on neck measurement and sleeve length. Oh my goodness, if we could get that kind of 
um, granularity in our sizes. Uh, And we said, how do we adapt that into a sizing structure that would allow us to sell clothes off the rack? So these are not custom-made, they're returnable, but they actually have a chance of fitting. Um, And so we created a sizing uh, metric based on bra size and height and founded a brand around it called Quincy Apparel. Um, We were up and running for two glorious years. Mm -hmm. Uh, We raised about a million dollars in venture capital and we had a good run at it. We had really committed customers, and we were sort of kind of figuring it out on so, our so third season So can you tell me a little there. bit about, you know, sort of the process of raising money? What was your experience like to, to raise this it's sort awful. of million-dollar grant? <laughs> right, yeah. Well. It's awful. I don't know anyone who likes the process of raising money. Um, but I think particularly for first-time founders who did not have experience in the industry we were looking to build in, and um, and quite frankly, raising capital for a working capital intensive business. You know, this isn't software where there's a zero incremental margin on, you know, additional units. Um, every single thing that we wanted to sell, we had to first buy the materials for and make and store in hopes that we would sell it later. Right. Um, so it was not a cheap business to build. And in retail, you know, you're not going to see the same kind of margins or, frankly, return on investment that you're going to see in tech. So we positioned it as a tech startup. There was certainly a, a wave of um, e-commerce. This was like your little Trojan horse, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was, was like a wave that of e-commerce-based brands that came out 2010, 2011, 2012, that we could sort of hook onto enough that investors were like, oh, yeah, we saw, you know, Bobble Bar with jewelry, Warby Parker with glasses, Bonobos did this for men's pants. Okay, yeah, we'll take a meeting and, and talk to the Quincy girls. Um, but, you know, we, we were raising for eight months trying to get this round to close, And we kept facing, there were two big problems. One, we started way too early because there was interest and we didn't realize, you know, just because they want to meet you doesn't mean you should meet them yet. Um, And so we got started and then word got out that we've been raising for so long that we just sort of limped to the finish. You know, everyone, we were like the girl who couldn't get a date to prom for a while. And then the other problem, um, which, you know, is, is the one piece that was kind of, really frustrating more than than um, maybe it should have been, was that we were pitching mostly to guys who didn't have this problem finding clothes. And they didn't understand why women's clothes would, wouldn't, um, you know, solve for women's bodies and why brands wouldn't be paying attention to this. And sometimes they would go ask their wives or girlfriends, and many of them, at least as they reported back to us, would say, oh, that's not a problem for me. St. John's fits me fine. We're like, well, that's great, but St. John's costs thousands of dollars. Right. (laughs) You know, Banana Republic does not. Um, Or they would say, you know, formal wear isn't really a thing anymore. It's all business casual. And we're like, that also may be true for your career, but in a certain set of the world for lawyers and people on Wall Street and people in consulting and you know, more traditional businesses in the middle of the country, the blazer and the button down are still the currency. Right. And um, and there's a market there. Yeah. So, so we had to really um, learn on the fly of how to actually explain the problem we were solving mu- in much more detail than assume they understood the problem and jump to the solution, which is how we had first started out. So by the end, we kind of had uh, had the 
the spiel down cold, but it was a lot of twenty-five and fifty thousand dollar checks, yeah. and then like two big, you know, one hundred and fifty and four hundred thousand dollar checks. Well, but, that's good. So you did get there. Oh, we did. You, you finally, you you just you know ground it out, right? <laughs> I mean, sometimes that's what it is, right? It's the grind, it but you, you made it. You raised your money. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like towards the end, you know, you got some larger checks. So were there, you know, was it? institutionals or was was there any additional pressure from having some larger investors come in, you know, where you felt you had to operate in a different way or there were different demands or expectations put on you? Yeah. So we had two big institutional checks and one of them in particular, they, you know, we called them the lead. They were sort of the last check in, but they were the biggest ones. So they got to, to sort of decide um, they wanted us to have a board. They wanted a seat on the board. So we gave them that. We we sort of did that. And and the big problem that we had, we ended up having around that in terms of uh, pressures, as you were asking, um, they tranched the investment, right. which was um, something I knew existed and had been warned against. But when you only have one check on the table, what you, can you do? You, what can you do? So they tranched the investment into three checks and had set certain metrics for the second and the third check. And those metrics, in hindsight, were very clearly not the metrics that we should be chasing after at this stage of building a company. Mm -hmm. They were around sales. um, They were around, you know, repeat customers. But they weren't around costs or margins Mm -hmm. or um, working capital. It really was around. Things that would keep you alive. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And, you know, we had already saved that room for them in the round. So if we didn't end up getting those checks, it's not like we could go to someone else and say, hey, the people who know us the best don't want to give us the money. Do you want to? Like, no one will touch you then. Mm -hmm. So we we ended up chasing, you know, these metrics and got there and we got those checks. But by the time that third check came in, we were in such a financial state in terms of our working capital and our margins that we had no chance of staying alive without getting another big infusion of cash. Right. And our, we had finally, this was our third collection, um, we had finally really kind of reached a growth curve with our customers that we could see, um, you know, sustaining us. But the cost basis was so high. And in fashion, you have to invest in a season and mm-hmm. then you sell it over the next few months. That was the step and function. And inventory. Exactly. It's, not, it's, it's a tough business. Exactly. <laughs> we had this step function need for cash and we weren't yet at a place that we could raise at a higher valuation. Mm-hmm. So we needed additional support from existing investors and they weren't interested. Um, so it ended up putting us in this place where actually the business was was maybe not the healthiest, but the opportunity, the brand, the team, like we were kind of on the upward trajectory and ended up shutting down in the well, midst of all of that. You know, I think this is a really great story because, you know, I talk with, you know, founders who are raising capital for a living on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's amazing how people don't realize all the different ways that sometimes taking capital can actually kill your business. And this yeah. is just one very <laughs> unique one. Yeah. You know, and I warn people, they go, oh, yeah. this guy wants to give me $5 million on a $20 million valuation. And we just met last week and I've not, I've just got an idea. And, mm-hmm. you know, we say, you know, there's a possibility your business could work. But mm-hmm. if you put yourself in this position, there's a possibility you're business will definitely be killed. So, you know, I I really think sharing that is so valuable, which is that, you know, it's not just, um, 
getting the money, but mm-hmm. it's, you know, who's investing, what yeah. are the terms surrounding it, being really aware of that. So so you and your co-founder met at Harvard Business School, mm-hmm. correct? Right. So that's, you know, a common origin mm-hmm. story. Indeed. I went to Columbia Business School. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I did not do a startup out of there, but I know <laughs> a lot of people who formed teams. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, from your experience, and I'm sure your co-founder is an absolutely lovely person, mm-hmm. but what were the positives and negatives of having a co-founder, mm-hmm. probably somebody who, you know, you hadn't really known your whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what things do you think are important to be aware of in building that relationship around sort of like complementary skill sets sure. and, you know, sort of things to worry about? Yeah, we actually talk about this a lot. My co-founder and I, we were best friends at business school. We we had a little break in that friendship when the company shut down. And then we're actually great friends again. That's great. Um, and, you know, we we Harvard Business School wrote a case study on our failure that we go back and teach uh, to all of the first-year entrepreneurship students. And we talk about this explicitly because we saw in, you know, we started business school in 2008, three weeks before Lehman Brothers fell. And there was this huge surge of entrepreneurship during our two years because there were no other jobs. And there was, as you said, there was this trend of two co-founders who met at business school buckling up and sort of when you've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, we looked amongst our our friends and our, our colleagues and said, you know, we think compared to the rest of, you know, the, the pool that our skills are um, opposite of each other. She was trained as a mechanical engineer and had worked in consulting and on the retail uh, sector for, I think, three years before she came to business school and then went back to BCG as well. Um, and I said, you know, really, you're an operations person. You get the engineering. You're very systems-based. I'm this creative artsy person who worked in opera and theater, and I can tell a great story, which is a great skill for marketing. Look how different we are. Right. But in reality, (laughs) our overlapping Venn diagram was, like, huge. And, like, the difference in our skills were very narrow. Um, And between being trained not just in the same class but in the same section at HBS, and then I went to BCG and she was at BCG, so we were also trained in the same way of thinking there. When when problems came up in our startup, it was never actually clear which of us was responsible for them or or who was going to take ownership of that because there were so many things that we both could do right and there were so many things that neither of us could do so when i when i talk to founders and when i work with people now that are looking for advice on on co-founders it really is about finding some overlap in your Venn diagram you have to have some kind of common you know, relationship or vocabulary or experience that allows you to trust each other. But, you know, the least amount of overlap you can handle is probably the best um, because you, when a problem comes up, you never want to have to pause to say, is this my thing or your thing? Like, right. you just want to know whose thing it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of a working relationship, you know, the more obviously that you can have that experience ahead of time and, like, not a friendship, a working relationship, right? This is a professional marriage. Right. Um, so it's great if you like them, but do you communicate well? Can you give critical feedback? Um, can you guys have disagreements and resolve them professionally and be okay at the end of the day? And to the extent that you can practice that relationship, co-founder dating by doing small projects or mini consulting or whatever that is, mm-hmm. um, it, is going to serve you better than picking that friend you've known for 20 years and deciding to go to business with them. Right, 
Right. Well, I think that that's fantastic advice. You know, one of the things that you mentioned earlier that I think is so interesting and, you know, very relevant right now is going back to HBS, doing the case study of your failed business. Um, And we talk a lot about today the fact that, you know, there's this culture of founders always saying, you know, I'm killing it. It's great. (laughs) Everything's wonderful. Mm -hmm. And there's very little sharing of the challenges or the things that didn't work out. You know, so, you know, how is it for you to go back and teach that case study and, you know, talk about publicly, mm-hmm. you know, why your did business did or did or, I mean, it obviously didn't work out, but mm-hmm. what things worked and what things didn't? And is that hard to do? I don't find it hard at all. And and maybe I'm a special snowflake. I don't know. But, um, well, obviously <laughs> you are for other reasons. But I, but yeah. you know, I showed up the first time we taught this two years ago. I think the students were genuinely shocked um, that I would come back and stand in front of them and and say very explicitly I failed, um, and you know I was in your place five years ago and now I'm here and um, and I and that's okay right like that failure isn't fatal it's not final right it's it's a a piece of your story um, it doesn't bother me in the least because I don't feel like that is a reflection on my my moral character or my abilities in in totality it was just one project and that project didn't work and for the most part i know why it didn't work and none of that is because i'm a bad person or <laughs> wasted people's money or embezzled or you know any of the things that i would be embarrassed to share these were genuine you know learnings some of which i probably should have seen and some of which i couldn't have possibly seen ahead of time um you know and and I think it's really important. I get frustrated when I see uh, soft landings, the mm-hmm. aqua hires, right. um, when everyone knows that they were aqua hires. And there's, there's no shame in that, but everyone's sort of like, oh, my God, congratulations on that acquisition for an unnamed price that just means that you're going to go work for this big company now. And we all pretend like that's a huge success. And it's not that I want to shame people, but it just means that on the rare occasion that you have a flat-out failure like Quincy, you feel like you're the only one in that boat. When right. we all know that 90% of startups don't don't work. So we can't be the only person in the boat. It's a little bit like the entire conversation around mental health, I think, right now, mm-hmm. where we know a lot of people are feeling this or struggling with this, but it's it's somehow not okay to say out loud. And so everyone feels like they're alone. Right. Um, and I actually wrote a piece uh, a year ago on the relationship of mental health and startups and this crushing it mentality that continues to be... We can't all be crushing it. Exactly. (laughs) It continues to be like my top red thing on Medium. Um, And so many people say, oh, I just, I wish more people would say this out loud. They're like, I'm struggling today. Yeah. This has been a hard month. I feel overwhelmed and underwater and I don't know what to do. Yeah. Um, And just be a little more honest. And it's, I get it. It's hard when you feel like every person you talk to could be a potential customer or partner or investor, um, that you want them to see the best of you. But I think if we allow a little bit more authenticity, I actually trust those people way more Mm -hmm. than the people who only show the best because Mm -hmm. it only makes me wonder why are you not showing me? Right, right. 
No, I think that that's uh, fantastic advice. And, you know, although I do get it that while you're out fundraising, you might not want to, you know, lift the kimono to the whole world. (laughs) Um, I do think it's really important that more people share their stories and their challenges so that, you know, number one, um, we all know that a lot of women suffer from perfection syndrome. And so if all you hear is, you know, everything was easy and -and so-and-so is killing it, you know, people tend to think, well, I have to be perfect before I I try. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've never heard of anyone failing. So if it happened to me, I'm somehow, you know, Mm -hmm. marked. Um, So I think sharing these stories is really important because, you know, it makes people, um, I think, look at things a little bit more realistically and look at the challenges Mm -hmm. of starting a business a little bit more realistically. Well, the funny thing is the number one question I get when I go back to HBS from students, and they never ask it in front of the entire class, they always come up to me afterward, um, is, you know, how did you get your next job after Quincy failed? Like, what was that conversation like? What was that interview like? And, you know, when I went out uh, and finally kind of dragged myself out of bed, I, I Went to bed for about three weeks, watched all seven seasons of The West Wing, and oh, ordered nice. Seamless. And was I've just not like, seen that yet. So oh, it's the perfect okay. <laughs> like recovering from your life. <laughs> so if I were to, you know, I'll save yes, that for save it, for, uh, save it. like a rainy day. You, know, you only really need weeks. to watch the first four seasons. Okay, five, six, and seven. Sorkin left. <laughs> so and now it's I not have something good. to look forward to. There you if go. My life completely collapses. I'm putting that on hold. West Wing. <laughs> um, but when I dragged myself out of bed and I said, okay, well, first I have to figure out. What do I want to be, at least next? Not when I grow up, but next. What do I want to be next? What am I good at? What do I never want to do again? Like accounting. Um, mm-hmm. I did a lot of our accounting for most of Quincy, and I was like, I never want to do that again. And how do I translate that into my next job? And I, I called up every single person that I'd basically done a favor for in the two years of building Quincy and said, okay, I need I need a coffee chat. I need I need your help now. I'm calling in my favor. And I did 70 coffee chats in 30 days And over the course of these conversations, really kind of identified what's that thing that I'm good at and I like doing. And it kind of came down to general management, kind of like being a GM or a product manager of a new unit or a new product or a new market, or brand marketing, Mm -hmm. storytelling um, that I, I really liked and that I seemed to peak at compared to my peers. Right. And then I said, okay, well, now I need a job. So now I know what I'm asking for. Do you know anyone who's looking? And I want to stay in New York. I've built this great network. That is my secret sauce. And not one point in any of those 70 conversations or any of the interviews I had with the opportunities that came out of those, not one point did anyone say, like, so, your startup failed. Uh, what's the deal with that? Why should I hire you yeah. when you can't even, you know, <laughs> you found a multi-million dollar company? You billion dollar right, company. Right. I mean, Really? Right. No one asked that. <laughs> yes. And and at no point and no did one anyone will ask, and no one right? will, right? So, at no yeah. point did anyone uh, uh, infer that that failure would translate to why I would not be good at or qualified for the next job. Um and you know th- this is why I tell the story even more cuz I'm like first of all if you don't tell it no one's ever going to hear it because no one seems to be asking, but secondly, it's not the fatal blow to your career. It's literally just one project one thing, it didn't work. And I learned more from those two years than I learned at business school. Um, and certainly it accelerated the pace of my career by easily five years, maybe more. Right. Because um, I hired myself for a job that I wasn't actually qualified for and no one else <laughs> would hire me for to be the right. CEO of a fashion <laughs> tech company. Um, and so, you know, I think if if more women are willing to take that risk, understanding that failure is not fatal, I think they will be pleasantly surprised 
at whatever comes out of it, even if it's not the thing they originally shot for. Right. That's I think that's really great advice. And I appreciate you, you know, sharing it with our listeners. But what I would love to do mm-hmm. is um, to take a few minutes with you. Sure. Uh, number one, just to thank you so much for your time today and to uh, move on to what we call our pay it forward Indeed. section, which is where we devote about 60 seconds speed lightning round to making our listeners smarter. So first question is, what are your primary sources of information? Twitter. All Twitter. Twitter all day. Mm -hmm. Okay, wonderful. What book are you reading right now? Um, I just finished When Breath Becomes Air by Paul, I'm going to say his name wrong, Paul Calanthini. Um, It's a magnificent book. It's going to make you cry. Okay, I'm going to check it out. Do you have any rituals or habits that you swear by? None. I, I change everything up about every change everything every day. Yeah. I love this. Okay, <laughs> who are three female entrepreneurs or leaders that you most admire? Ooh, uh, Shonda Rhimes. Love um, her. Catherine Minshew, the CEO and founder of the Muse. Oh yeah, I've met her. She's very sweet. She's very yeah, smart very nice too. person. Um, and uh, probably Senator Gillibrand. Okay, interesting. Very cool. Uh, fellow redhead, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Gingers and has. Okay. So uh, what is the best advice that you've ever received? Um, probably the, it's attributed to Albert Einstein, and I never believe anything on the internet, but uh, the, the story or the quote that says um, something like, even a fish is going to feel stupid if he's trying to climb a tree. Okay. And realizing that context is so important. Yeah. And if you're in the wrong environment or the wrong context, you're probably going to feel ineffective and stupid. But find where you fit and everything changes. I love that advice. That's a really good one. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with me. Sure. Are there any particular myths that you'd like to dispel for our listeners? You don't have to be venture-backed to be a real startup. I love that one, too. That's great. What words of advice would you give to listeners about taking risks and especially closing the confidence gap? Um, I would say you've got to brag about your own uh, accomplishments and self-worth if you ever want someone to brag about them for you. And it can feel super awkward and super painful at the beginning. But if you practice it, it, it's somehow it it kind of works. That is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the hardest things to do. So to close, what does think broad mean to you? Um, well, my grammar head says it's think broadly. Um, but <laughs> no, it's think broad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think about it in terms of um, think multidimensionally, yeah. right? If, if the X, Y plane of thinking doesn't work, go into the Z plane, right? Change your plane, change your... Um, your perspective of your access, and uh, and you just might find that diagonal solution. Well, thank you so much, Christina. Uh, I know that our listeners had a really great time hearing your story today, and we appreciate it. And for those of you who are in the audience, thank you for listening to Broad Mike. Subscribe now on iTunes so you never miss an episode. Please review our podcast on iTunes, which will help other listeners discover Broad Mike. We want your feedback. Broadmic is produced by Christy Mirabel with editing by John Marshall Media. Our executive producer is Sarah Weinheimer. Think broad.